Welcome to Let's Talk Parish. Let's Talk Parish will be an opportunity to learn about some of the people that call the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament in Sacramento, California, home. My name is Chris, and I'll be the host for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Good morning, Oscar. Welcome to Let's Talk Parish. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I'm so looking forward to this chat. We I, we went to um, your godson's uh, 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 baptismal birthday party, so to speak. Let's put it that way. And you shared a little bit about your story then, and I I thought, wow, wow, I have to hear the whole whole thing, and I want to share it with everybody. Um, and it's funny because I sort of know you by relationship because I know Tom who is your godson and it's through Tom that I, I got to meet you That's right. and then your love of the choir and the music um, helped us get to know each other a little better yeah. and uh, so I I enjoy our friendship a lot. So do I. Um, and, and, and that's another reason I'm looking forward to hearing this. And I think that I've got a lot of friends who, I'll just spill the beans a little bit. Um, this is going to be about Cuba and the revolution. And I have a lot of friends who, have, who see Cuba from a certain perspective, and maybe not from the perspective that you're going to be bringing today. So I'm really, um, I feel really... F- fortunate and, and blessed to be able to know you, well, thank um, you. And, and get into this. But before we dive into your faith journey, uh, let's ask the Lord to, to bless our time um, so that uh, our sharing is beneficial to our listeners and ask the listeners to join in as we ask the Father to send His Spirit. So in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this beautiful windy day that we're having here in Sacramento. It's warm, but it's nice. We thank you for this opportunity and this location to share our lives together with our listeners. We ask that our words be loving and edifying, that we would build up the body of Christ. We ask that you send your spirit to guide our thoughts and our words, that our words glorify you. And we ask this through the name of your Son, Jesus, in unity with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okie dokie. So, um, are you a cradle Catholic? I am. I was uh, cradle Catholic and baptized and confirmed within three months of my birth. Oh my gosh, that's, is that normal? Uh, it is in certain parts of Latin America. Oh, it is. So uh, I was actually uh, baptized and confirmed on the feast of the Immaculate Conception uh, of that year, mm-hmm. which was a wonderful feast when the uh, bishop came to our town to take care of all the little babies that had been born in the last few months. So this is, this is a lot of babies born post-World War II. This was 1955. Yeah. So I was born on the feast of the Archangel Michael, which is my middle name, mm. September 29th. And then my baptism was December 8th. And I was born in 56, so 56. you're only one year older than me. So we could have gone to high school together. It's, it's, it's possible. <laughs> it's very possible. Had I been where you were or you were where I was, that's possible. Right. Um, so um, you were born in Cuba. 
That's right. And what was the name of the little, was it a, a large town or a village? It's the, the third largest city in mm. Cuba. Mm -hmm. So the largest city, of course, is Havana. Okay. Santiago is the second largest. And then Camaway, which is my town, is the third largest city. Has approximately 700,000 inhabitants. Right okay. Now. Yeah. now, Cuba, as an island, it, it pretty much runs east to west, west to east. That's right. That, right. Mm -hmm. The axis is um, uh, west to east. Mm -hmm. um, so were you on the western side of the island, the eastern side? More towards the eastern side. But if you if you look at a map of Cuba and you look, it looks like a crocodile. Mm -hmm. The belly of the crocodile is my province. Okay. And our city is one of the few large cities in Cuba that is not on the coast. Is smack in the middle of the province. Oh, interesting. Because of pirates back in the 1500s. The city oh. used to be on the water, and there were so many pirate raids uh -huh. and so many buccaneers and whatnot that the town had to be moved in, and they moved it in as far inland as they could. Wow. Well, yeah. do, you know, do you know how much pirates cost? Uh, I have no idea, but I know they made Queen Elizabeth of England very yeah. rich. They, they cost a buccaneer. A buccaneer. There you go. <laughs> I think in Cuba they cost a buck a peso. <laughs> a peso in there. Oh. Plus yeah. a, a pisaneer. A pisaneer. Um, well, that's interesting. So... It was a very so old city. It was a very old city. And yeah. you were born prior to the uh, revolution. That's right. Right? What was, right. What was, um, what was it like growing up? As a little kid, like that. Well, do you remember um, much? I do. I, I remember some, and then, of course, from you know family uh, lore and tradition and conversations and so on. Um, it was a very prosperous time for Cuba. It was a very prosperous time for a relatively large middle class, mm -hmm. which existed in Cuba for a long time, unlike other countries in Latin America where there wasn't much of a middle class. There was either a an upper class, and then everyone else. Cuba had a very sub substantive middle mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. So our family belonged to that middle class. My father's family had their own business. My mother's family had their own business. Oh, wow. And they were doing very well. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, life, was, uh, life was good. And then, you know, the revolution came. And, and everything changed. And within... A matter of three, four years, everything began to change dramatically. Yeah. Did you have a large family? Uh, well, I'm an only child. That would be so, a no. Yeah, that's so that, the immediate but family. I mean, but in, when you talk to a Hispanic person about do you have a large family, <laughs> we usually think of the extended family. Yes, we uncles, default to cousins, extended family. How about that? So, so did you have a large extended family? We did. We did. Uh, I had lots of uncles and aunts and cousins, and my grandparents were both alive mm -hmm. for, until I was in my 20s. So, uh, yeah, it was a very large loving, uh, warm family. Do you and, remember, um, do you remember yeah. uh, attending Mass as a child? I do. I attending, it, it was, uh, I, I remember attending a Latin Mass mm -hmm. as a little child. Well, this is pre-Vatican II. This is pre-Vatican II. My uh, baptism and confirmation were the last ones done just before the council began. Really? So, Yeah. How interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was very interesting and um I remember the ending phrases of the some parts of the Latin mass. So yeah, I mm -hmm. remember that. Mm -hmm. And the the altars being very beautiful and full of flowers. I remember mm -hmm. lots of flowers everywhere, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
did um, now, so how old were you when the revolution? When was what year was that? The revolution was in fifty nine. Fifty nine. You were right. born in fifty five. So, so I you was were about four, three and a half, three four. And a half, four years old. Yeah, yeah. Three and hadn't and even really started going to school yet. No, I would be going to school the following year, mm-hmm. and at that time when I began school during the first two years of the revolution. Uh, private schools were still allowed. Okay. So the Catholic Church or uh, lay private schools, mm-hmm. like my mother's business, they had a, a private school, K-12, through okay. were still allowed to be open. And so children were allowed to attend private school or Catholic school or public school. Or public school. But then things changed after two years of the revolution, and then any school except public schools were outlawed and uh, there was an emphasis on promoting one official ideology mm-hmm. and way of thinking mm-hmm. with no alternative way of educating children or teaching them or anything like that. Wow. And yeah. communism is inherently atheistic. And totalitarian. And totalitarian. Um, so... Uh, after two years, was was religious expression made illegal? I mean, was were churches illegal, or what was what was happening? There were a lot of changes that were taking place in the country: social changes, economic changes, political changes that were taking place from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Within the the within about a year and a half, the government, the central government in Havana was issuing letters to the bishops in Cuba Mm -hmm. telling them what they had to preach from the pulpit about these changes Hmm. and uh, sponsoring them and backing them up unconditionally. The bishops pushed back and said, no, uh, we uh, we cannot say that firing squads are necessarily Christian and uh, wow. loving of one's neighbor. <laughs> we cannot say so on and so forth. And so uh, a lot of tension developed from the beginning, from the, after the first year and a half between the Catholic Church in Cuba and the new government. The new government wanted to co-opt the church. Mm-hmm. The church saw itself as being independent. And it, it adopted the role of speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm which is not a good thing to do well, in not, a totalitarian government. No. Whether it's the mean, right it's or the good, left. It's a good thing to do. It's, it's yeah. not always the safe thing to do. And it was not. And it was not safe. And uh, it was, uh, after a while, other things happened. The Bay of Pigs happened. Mm-hmm. The missiles, the crisis of October, the missiles of October happened mm-hmm. the following mm-hmm. year. Uh, the Cuba aligned itself with the Soviet Union. Uh, unequivocally and publicly, not just under the table. Mm-hmm. And so the the church was given basically a choice. Either you become a co-opted institution mm-hmm. and you work under the aegis of our government and you say what we say and you teach what we teach, or else we will have to basically emasculate you socially mm-hmm. and make you irrelevant mm-hmm. the church obviously chose to stand mm-hmm. by its teaching by its by its magisterium uh, by its Christian beliefs and so basically said no 
we will not do that. So what happened was the government decided at that point to close all the schools, to close all the seminaries. When you say all the schools, are we including all, all the Catholic schools? schools I'm sorry. All. Yeah, right. No, I'm I'm talking about the Catholic experience. Okay. Yeah. All right. But but as a footnote, they also closed all private schools. Okay. Uh, there was, for example, an Episcopalian uh, school mm-hmm. in our town, and so that Protestant uh, private school was also closed. Hmm. And uh, my mother's uh, lay private school was also closed. So basically, it was a way of co-opting any ideology that was not the official new orthodoxy in teaching. Right. They, uh, they went one step further, and they rounded up all the priests, all the nuns, all the monks in Cuba. They literally put them on the same boat called the Covadonga, which was a very large ship, And they shipped them all to Spain and Italy. Hmm. And uh, they said, you don't want to live with a communist government. You won't have to. And so in a province like ours, which was over a million and a half people for the entire province, Mm -hmm. uh, in 1962, there was only one priest. One priest left for the entire province. He stayed. They allowed him to stay. Oh, And the only thing he was allowed to do was to say Mass. Hmm. He could not perform any of the other sacraments. And what they did after that is they began to import Catholic priests, a few, not not as many as there had been uh, exported, but to import Catholic priests from other parts of the world where they could come and be a priest in Cuba without challenging the politics Hmm. of the time. So, for example... uh, at our parish, we we got a Belgian priest okay. who hardly spoke Spanish, which made confessions very difficult. Oh yeah, and some of the other sacraments also very difficult, anointing of the sick, and you know so on. Sure, um, but these people had no dog in the fight, hmm. so they would not oppose the government in anything the government said or did because they were not Cuban-born priests. Hmm. So they they didn't have any sense of um, cultural or national alliance to yeah. Cuba, allegiance to Cuba, yeah. because they and so they were simply used as little mass preaching robots yeah. that the government could easily control and could easily deport. So that was the reality that I remember after, let's say, '62, uh, because you couldn't find you couldn't find a, a Cuban priest anywhere. Yeah. And the seminaries had been closed, so none of them were being trained for anything. The seminary buildings were uh, transformed into public government buildings. And so all the property that the Catholic Church owned in Cuba was expropriated, and it went to the government, and it was used for governmental purposes. Mm -hmm. And so they they tried to dismantle this... um, opposing voice mm-hmm. that the church had been uh, at the beginning. So and they succeeded to a great extent. It sounds like it. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about how this impacted your life. Mm-hmm. So when this all started really coming down after, say, like after the first two years, mm-hmm. what was you, so you had to leave 
the Catholic school and enter a public school. That's right. And was there a... As a nonconformist. As a nonconformist. I was going to ask, was there a general societal um, disposition towards... Catholic Christians, Catholics and Christians in general? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was it positive or negative? I don't think it was very positive. (laughs) It was positively bad. So were you you ill-treated? I was very ill-treated by teachers and by other students because uh, I came from a nonconformist family Mm -hmm. and a family that had already told the government that we wanted to emigrate from Cuba because we didn't agree with the politics. We didn't agree with being robbed of everything we had attained through hard work. And, uh, and we didn't agree with the violation of human rights. And we didn't agree with any of that. So mm-hmm. consequently, my parents had applied to leave Cuba. It took us four years to be able to leave, mm-hmm. during which it was a very, very hard time because you've already told the government and your neighbors that you're a nonconformist. And so in class, for example, it wasn't required at the time like it is now, but it, uh, it was highly recommended that you would wear the communist children's uniform, which was called the pioneer uniform. Uh, lots of red, mm. red pants, red scarf, and so on. And if you didn't, then you were signaling yourself as being odd man out Mm -hmm. and uh, I did not want to wear it because I didn't believe in what it represented even as a third grader I I did not agree and so some of the other children in class and you know you'd be in a class of 20 and 15 of them were already wearing the the pioneer uniform and five of us were not Mm. and you can of course imagine how you were treated you know the, the, the kids are mean regardless kids, not only kids but teachers teachers because the teachers were being watched all the time sure. what are you teaching these children are you teaching them counter-revolutionary ideas are you teaching them something that's not orthodox politically mm-hmm. orthodox so we're watching you so they had to basically discriminate against us even if some of us some of us who were Nonconformists were among the high performers in class. Mm-hmm. You were somehow taken down a notch or sure. two because sure. you couldn't be the best student in class. You couldn't be. It was be. politically I mean, inconvenient. Okay? No, it doesn't fit the message. Right. And once you reached age 14, if you were still not conforming, you were not allowed to go to university. Not no matter what your grades were. Wow. No matter what your grades were. Halfway through high school, that was the end of your education. Regardless of your grades, your awards, your anything, you had no future mm-hmm. as a professional in Cuba. You had no future as a university student. Um, you were put to work. And the work that you were to do was to be a menial, humiliating job. Mm-hmm. And then you were not allowed to leave Cuba because from the age of 14 to the age of 62, males were not allowed to leave Cuba unless they had a special permission Mm. for reasons of family or health or whatever. Right. You need need that labor force. You can't let them go. Right. Not only that, but you you didn't want a brain drain. You didn't want a brain drain. But what if your smartest people 
are these nonconformists? Well, then you have there, there, there were a lot of it's counterproductive in a way, doesn't it? It is. In the it, as time went on, yeah. it did. It turned out to be that way. But there were a lot of smart people from the previous, from the pre-revolutionary era, that were the professors of architecture, the mm-hmm. professors of economics, the leading businessmen in the country. You know, the the top doctors, the top surgeons, and so on. Those people were left in Cuba. They were not allowed to leave. Unless they left at the very, very beginning. Very beginning. Yeah. It, by, by 1964, the entire faculty of the School of Architecture in Havana had left. Uh-huh. Most of them for Sweden. And there was no School of Architecture in Cuba for years. And that's why, I, that's why Ikea is so good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very good. Ikea, an old Cuban firm. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, so did, did an underground Catholic presence develop? It was very difficult, yes. Uh, yes. Um, if, you, if you didn't care about going to university, if you didn't care about um, the consequences, like my cousin and her husband, who were extremely brave, and they, at the time they were in their early 20s, mm-hmm. very brave couple, still living in Cuba today. Wow. Yeah, they never left. Uh, or other young people... Um, you persevered, but the church was so weakened, and it, there was such um, such fear of being completely, not mostly, but completely obliterated from the uh, the cultural and, and societal landscape that the church kept a very very low profile. Hmm. There was no resistance, you know, like the French during the Second World War or sure. anything like that. Sure. Um, Sometimes when you were, um, during the summers, they would take all the students and they would take them out to the country, uh, the countryside for the, the sugar cane uh, harvest, okay? And uh, so th- these young people lived together for three months. And uh, sometimes there are stories that when you were, if you wanted to know if there was another Christian, another Catholic in the group, you would begin whistling a little something from Mass. Hmm. And if the other person knew that melody and responded, you knew that that other person was also a Christian, a Catholic, and a practicing one. It reminds okay? me of in the early church where they would use the sign of the fish often exactly. to identify each other. Exactly, because the consequences were pretty similar. Pretty dire. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I've, I read the history of the Cristero War in Mexico mm-hmm. in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, many people were actually executed. Right. Um, did that ever happen in Cuba? No, I, I would say not necessarily. But the problem of, with that question is that there are many overlaps in people's lives. Mm. Somebody who may have been a practicing Catholic or a fervent Catholic could also have been a political um, counter-revolutionary. And so they may have been executed for that reason, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily for being Catholic. Which may have actually been part of the reason, but they didn't have to use that. They could use being the counter-revolutionary as the... the, uh, Yes. Possibly. um, But there there was no... no, um, wasn't there was such it wasn't overt and there and there was such fear mm-hmm. and a sense of disorientation among the Catholic community that there wasn't a need for the government to expressly 
target just that one population for right. that one reason. Right. Okay. But um, it was a very difficult time. And that situation went on for decades. Do you remember going to Mass during that time while you were still there? Very few times. Very few times. Very few times because we were already walking on thin ice after telling the government we wanted to emigrate. Yeah, you put a mark on yourself, basically. We had, we had, you know, bullseye yeah. on our backs. And so I remember going to Mass a few times, uh, but it was not something... Because people would be standing outside of churches, seeing who was going in, who was coming out. So they could so they, spy they, on you guys. So they could, yeah, because I mean, in. oh yeah, it's a, it's a type of society based on distrust and suspicion hmm. and turning other people in. My mother was put in jail twice because she was a, a she went she became a public school teacher after having owned her own private school. Oh, she did. And and some of the and one student in one occasion and one a cleaning lady in another occasion turned her in because they thought she was teaching counter-revolutionary ideology. She was a subversive. She was a subversive. And I'll give you one example of what my mother said. Um, a student in class was praising Fidel Castro mm-hmm. and saying what a great martyr Fidel Castro was and so on and so forth. And my mother corrected her and said, I think you mean a hero, not a martyr, because Fidel is still alive. He hasn't died for the cause. That was enough. She had spoken ill of the supreme leader, and she had to be denounced. And she spent three days and two nights in jail. Oh, my god! And my father and I had no idea what had happened. You didn't know where she was? We knew where she was, but we didn't know why she was there. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it was that kind of... That kind of paranoia, yeah. that kind of drama that followed you everywhere you went. I bet it was hard to find legal representation. There is no legal representation. The best we could do was through contacts, mm-hmm. friends of friends who had a say with the uh, communist headquarters of our town to disentangle this confusion and show her to be innocent of having taught anything that was counter-revolutionary right. or against the Castros. Wow. That it was just somebody who didn't understand semantics right. and didn't understand, didn't have a command of the vocabulary, basic uh, vocabulary, to be able to understand what was being said. The difference between a martyr and a hero. Correct. But, um, so if you weren't able to participate at a mass on, on any regular basis mm-hmm. did your family develop devotions that, that you would do at home in private yes yeah you you have to remember we were coming straight out of a um, pre-vatican II world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where devotions and may altars and you know the rosary and the scapulars and so on were a very big part of, sure. of culture right um my recollection was the Vatican II went from 62 to 64. Something like that. Yeah. Right. So we're talking about a reality that the council was going on at the same time that we were living through all this in Cuba. Mm-hmm. So we still had a pre-Vatican II Catholic foundation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. part of which was you don't leave religion in the sanctuary, you bring it into your home, mm-hmm. and it is part of your everyday life. Right. So all the uh, devotions and things like that were maintained, but as time went on, the sacraments, including the liturgy, became more and more difficult to access. Right. And this situation went on 
un- pretty much unchanged until John Paul II went to Cuba. Mm. And we're talking the 80s. Wow. So we're talking through the 60s, definitely through the 70s, which was the glorious communist decade in Cuba. And then in the 80s, there was a famous meeting between John Paul II from Poland and Fidel Castro from communist Cuba in Havana. And after John Paul left, there was some relaxation of social life for Catholics, Mm -hmm. those who were still left uh, to maneuver a, a social space that got a little bit less restrictive than before. And so um, I believe it was at, at that time that the seminaries began working again and, you know, young men could be trained once a year. But very few, you know, this was all very, very diminished from what it had been in 1959. Sure. Okay. Um, so the, the big change, and, and John Paul II came to our, my hometown. He did. Oh, he did. It's, he, he, it's still remembered. To this day, the visit, the papal visit, still remembered and celebrated, and they, they still sing the songs that they sang for him mm-hmm. on that occasion, and it was in a big stadium outside of town, and it was a big a big deal. So he, he my cousin, of course, she and her husband were thrilled. They oh, were yeah. over the moon. I mean, this is... Um, so it was... There was a change in uh, the situation in Cuba with, as far as Catholics... Uh, the second reason, which had nothing to do with Catholicism, was the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. With the fall of the Soviet Union in 89, the petrodollars that were being sent from the Soviet Union to pump up the Cuban communist economy disappeared. Things got tougher for the government. Things got tougher for the for, for the uh, the official economy. And so they had to begin to relax some things mm. Um Probably the most important one was a a law was passed whereby it was not a contradiction to be both a practicing Catholic and a member of the Communist Party. Interesting. Because a lot of very talented people who were needed to kind of uh, push Cuba back up after Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, you know, uh, uh, fell apart were practicing Catholics. Mm-hmm. And so they had to open the doors for this other group that until then had been excluded from everything to join the government and help save Cuba. Economics sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Money talks. So when you were, what year was it that you guys immigrated to the U.S.? We immigrated to the U.S. on July 20th, 1966. So you were 11. Almost 11. Almost 11. Yeah. Um, what was that process like? process like for you and how um what was your what was your faith like what was your dependence on god like throughout that entire time of i don't know if i would call it persecution but it was definitely oppression no there was definitely oppression definitely oppression um at home i remember that in my room in my bedroom we had um religious statues that I would pray to. Um, as a child, I prayed not to be tormented so much by my classmates oh my gosh, because yeah. of who I was and you know what my family was. Yeah. Um, it was very hard to see my parents 
with no jobs. Um, and, and now you have to remember that you were not only unemployed, you were unemployable. So in other words, once you lost your job... That was it. That was it. Nobody yeah. could hire you because the government owned every employee. Yeah. It was every employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you participate in the government dole? No. No. No, there was no... So you, how you, do you get by? You had to, you had to fend for yourself. My, my mother began to uh, give private lessons at home and, you know, be paid for those private lessons. My father began to drive, uh, became like a, like a chauffeur for a government mucky muck who wasn't going to blow the whistle on him and who paid him under the table. Wow. Um, my parents had to um, bake uh, cakes and sell them on the side. Uh, they had to make uh, wooden shoes from pieces of wood. They would make these kind of Dutch-looking things, you know, that... Be- and, and it was... It was lucky that there it wasn't a consumer society anymore because everybody needed everything. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, but by the same token, you didn't know when you would be allowed to leave and come and be a free person again. And I remember one of the most emotional things was once we boarded the plane outside of Havana and we were flying to. Miami, once we were in the air for about five minutes, the pilot came on the intercom and said, everybody, relax, you're going to the U.S., you're finally free again. And there was a huge applause from everybody on the plane, and people started crying, and all the pent-up stress and tensions were just blowing up all over the place, and it was it was. A catharsis. It was a moment of true and strong emotions, a mm. sense of relief, and at the same time, a sense of sorrow because we had left our entire extended family behind. So I was going to ask you, how many of your family were allowed to leave? Just the three of us, you, my you, parents and I, and my and my my pe- my father's family did not want him to leave because. They were a very tight-knit family, and they mm. thought they'd never see each other again. Which is probably true. true. It could have been. It could have been. And my mother promised him that if, if they left, she would, make, she would move heaven and earth to help him bring his family to the U.S. Oh, and did that happen? It happened. But it happened. We were bringing out of Cuba almost tw- uh, yeah, 12 people. Mm-hmm many of whom had to live in Spain before they were allowed to come to the U.S. No kidding. Because things got, things got different after 1970. And while they were in Spain, we had to support them. Mm-hmm. And my parents, when they came here, they had to start from point zero, oh, which meant us. factory jobs, which yeah. meant you know, low-paying jobs. And oh. somehow they, made, they had to scrape and save to support family members in Spain. Unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, and then for the other ones that were able to come directly to the U.S., we had to set up apartments for them. We had to, (laughs) you have to buy pots and pans. You have to buy curtains, pillows, everything to set them up in a new country because they could not ever be a burden to the U.S. government. That That was was the the requirement. That was the proviso. Yeah. 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 Had any of your family come to the U.S. prior to you? One uh, uncle. My mother's brother had come to the U.S. in the early 50s 
Mm, before the revolution. Before the revolution, several years before the revolution, um, he had settled in West New York. He was working for the Ford Corporation mm -hmm. in one of their assembly plants. And he's the one who claimed us out of Cuba. Which is what allowed you guys to leave. Yes, and it would have been sooner, but for what happened. Um, there was a hierarchy of uh, family relations mm. in, uh, as to who would be allowed to leave first. So if it was a parent-child relationship, mm -hmm. they were at the head of the line. If it was a brother or a sibling relationship, you were in the second category. Uh, if, if you were uh, cousins or uncles, you were in the third category and so on. At the beginning, we were high on the list mm -hmm. because it was my grandmother was living with us. So it was my uncle claiming his mother out of Cuba, right. who was a, an older lady in poor health, and we were then attached to my grandmother's claim. Mm -hmm. So we would have left. But my grandmother passed away. Mm. And then we tumbled down from mother-son to sister-brother. Right. And that delayed us by three years uh. of unemployment, of stress, <laughs> of oppression, uh, It's, uh, it, it, but in 1966, we were finally able to leave. And originally, we went to West New York to live with my uncle. And after a month, uh, he told us that he had to move to California because hmm. the Ford Corporation had transferred him to one of their assembly plants in, in downtown LA, near downtown L.A. And so we had to follow him. Wow. <laughs> so when you came to the United States... Um, did the Catholic community embrace you guys? Uh, Be honest. Right. I'm, I'm trying to think to what extent. Um, they, the Catholic Church was involved in getting Cubans out of Cuba in the early 60s. They definitely sponsored the Peter Pan children Who, were, who left Cuba by themselves with no parents oh, wow. and were resettled in the U.S. in foster homes. That was done through the church. But by the mid-60s, uh, there wasn't that much of a sway that the church had with the communist government. For one thing, U.S.-Cuban relations had broken. Mm -hmm. And so there was no embassy in Washington, there was no embassy in Havana, Everything was done through the Swiss embassy serving as an intermediary. So there was no way, really, for the church to help us out of Cuba at that time. Once we got to the U.S., in a way, there was no need for the church to help us because the proviso was that my uncle would be taking care of us. Mm. So there was no need for the church to do anything for us. It, we were the responsibility of the person in America who was claiming us out of Cuba. Interesting. You see what I... But I ironically... See, I, see, but I, I, I see the rationale there, mm -hmm. but I don't think that was right. In my own opinion, mm -hmm. that wasn't right because the church should have helped your uncle. It could not have been easy for him to sponsor you guys. Couldn't have been. Well, he, ha he had to present the paperwork to the State Department right. showing the numbers, right. how much he was making, mm -hmm. how many children he had, and so on, and how he was he would be able to help us. And he, we, my parents did get jobs right away, even in West New York during the, the one month that, that we lived there. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. We got there in July, 
and we were resettled in L.A. in August. So you didn't stay in Miami very long then? Three days. Three days. Three days, because you had to be debriefed at an at, um, immigration center. Okay. And that was required. And then, But, but here is a, the interesting, ironic footnote. The, um, the people who gave us kind of pocket money mm-hmm. from Miami to West New York just to have some money, you know, was the Baptist Church. Really? Who gave us $60, uh-huh. which in 1966... That was a big deal. Was a big deal. Sure. That was a big deal. I mean, for me, it's a big deal today. It is a big deal today. So they gave us $60, and uh, they, to no strings attached. Yeah. And uh, so we would have some... So we wouldn't get to West New York with Nothing. totally empty pockets. Right. And so... That, uh, And I'm very thankful. Amen. Yeah. Amen. They didn't have to. Didn't have to. That's a very Christian thing to do. Very much yes, so. Yes, it is. Yes, it um, is. So, so, you know, I was, I was just reflecting on, on my own life. My parents shielded me from a lot of the family dynamic that was happening financially and all that stuff. And I wasn't aware of a lot of things. Um, for yourself, 11, 10 and a half, 11 years old, um, did your parents try to protect you? You couldn't. You just you so couldn't. You were pretty much aware of it. I was aware of what was going on. Every every child in Cuba knew exactly what was happening with their parents, and uh, especially if they were nonconformist, mm-hmm. um, suspected of being counter-revolutionaries, um, malcontents. Um, the tension, and I and you saw that. When you went to visit friends' homes. Oh, I bet. Yeah, you went to see, you know, other friends who were of like mind who had applied to leave Cuba and so on. Um, the stress was felt at every level, at the, you know, children's level, at the adult level. Uh, there was no, no safeguarding anyone from the realities of life. I mean, when you have, when you have ditches... 10 feet away from your house that have been dug up so you will take refuge there when the Americans bomb Cuba and the nuclear bombs begin to fly all over. You just go in that ditch and you cover yourself with palm leaves. Well, that's going to help. And you hope for the best. Well, that's a great way to protect yourself from a nuclear blast. And, of course, um, the uh, it never came to that, but the government never... Uh, filled up the ditches again and living in a tropical country they would fill up with water and insects and whatnot mosquitoes and you're living 10 12 feet away from that and this is in a in a nice suburban neighborhood which it's my parents had just bought that house brand new in 58 they had it built in 58 so this is a nice neighborhood, very much in the American style, like a American suburb. Like a suburb, yeah. yeah like a suburb of 1958 America. Yeah. It was very, very much like that. And you had stuff like that right outside your, your, uh, your door because the reality was such that you were constantly being told that the Americans were about to, to bomb you and to, to smash you to smithereens any minute now, and the only protector you had was the, the communist government in Havana, and you better be loyal to them and hope that they would be the ones, you know, victorious. Yeah. So that was pounded into your head every single day at school, on TV, 
you know, the newspapers everywhere you went. You know what's funny is that growing up in the U.S., I was only a year behind. We got the same message. We did duck and cover drills. We would hide. It's like so if the bombs, if you hear the sirens, get under your desk. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, that's not. You know, as, that. as a kid, I'm like, okay. I mean, as an adult, I'm looking back on. We'd all died. That would not. I mean, yeah. you know, but we we that was a constant thing that. Yep. Anytime Russia, it wasn't Cuba, but it was Russia. Right. Soviet to, Union. Well, yes, right. Soviet right. Union. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's a, they're mirror realities. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I just, to bounce back like mm-hmm. that, I was just curious. So when you came to the U.S., were you, were you and your family looking forward to start getting back to Mass and, and really being able to live your Catholic life in an open way? It was certainly a very welcome change. It was certainly um, a relief to be able to attend Mass and, um, and not be watched and not be denounced and not be turned in and not suffer consequences because of something as simple as going to Mass um, on Sundays. The, um, the reality was, however, um, more of a cultural uh, challenge because at the time where we were living, there, was, there were no Masses in Spanish, mm. and we spoke no English. Oh. And the Mass in Latin had already been pretty mm-hmm. much set aside. Phased out, pretty much. Phased out. So it was kind of um, going to Mass and not understanding a word of what was being said. Mm-hmm. There were very few Hispanics where we were living. Uh, like I said, no services mm-hmm. in Spanish. Um, no priests that I remember who were bilingual. Mm-hmm. So it was a very... It was a very um, Anglo experience mm-hmm. that we couldn't buy into right away because the language for a while was a barrier. Sure. I mean, I came when I when I think that we came to the U.S. on my mother's high school English, and my mother has never been a linguist. <laughs> She's never. <laughs> to this day, if you've ever talked to my mom, you, you know she sounds like she just got off the boat. Wow. Uh, and we relied on her, I don't know, B-minus English classes yeah, yeah. In, in Cuba. My dad and I spoke no English at all, none whatsoever. And it, that was a, another challenge. So it kind of discouraged you from attending. And also my parents were working overtime seven days a week. They were working seven days a week to bring family out of Cuba. Sure. Mass attendance was not always maintained. Did that change at all when you came to California? That was California. Oh, that was California. That was in California. Because we, we were only, well, we went to, initially we went to Inglewood in Southern, Southern, Southern California. California. Okay. But Inglewood in the 1960s was very different from the way Inglewood is today. Very different. Hmm. Inglewood was 98% wasp. Okay. Okay. 2% Jewish. And it wasn't, uh, I mean, I, I had no classmates who were Spanish speakers. I was not given a tutor the whole first year that I was there. I was simply plunked into a, a reading circle, which I remember, 
and all the kids laughing at me because I was reading it with a, with a Spanish phonetics, and this was English. Yeah. So they thought I was being funny, and then the teacher, who was this 200-year-old dinosaur from <laughs> Texas, he didn't know what to make of me. How many he didn't times, know what to do with me. How many times did you go home from school crying? Oh, many times. And uh, I had never, ever had my parents call to the principal's office. Never. And all of a sudden, this teacher, this fourth grade teacher, is always turning me over to the principal who's asking my parents to come to school to discuss my discipline problems. My discipline problems were that I didn't understand the language, and I didn't understand what was being told to me. So when somebody would say in English, everybody line up here, I had no idea. So I was looking around for somebody to tell me what we were going to do, and they thought I was being rebellious. They thought I was being undisciplined. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I want to make one little comment. You used the term wasp, and so for um, our listeners, some of them may not know what that means. It's white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Pretty much that was the, co- yeah. the composition. That's a wasp. Yeah, yeah, that was the composition of Inglewood at the time. Yeah. Things have changed. The next year, I had a wonderful fifth grade teacher. She was young, and she was beautiful, and she was smart, and she was she knew exactly what to do, and she located a lady from the PTA who had been a Baptist missionary in Bolivia. Oh, my gosh. And so she spoke fluent Spanish. Sure. Mrs. Snyder. And then two hours a day, every day, they would excuse me from class to go and learn English with Mrs. Snyder in the, the school library. Mm. And that was a blessing. She was wonderful, and she was a great teacher. So I wanted, so, so now we've talked about the Baptist church twice. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, which um, kudos to the Baptists, actually. You there, know. Yeah, and, 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 and this lady knew that I was Catholic, and she never tried to dissuade me from my faith mm-hmm. but she, she 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 knew the task at hand was to teach me english, english and be able to get me you know up to snuff and she did and then i was allowed to skip sixth grade and i went from fifth to seventh because i had already finished sixth grade in cuba oh and the material in cuba for the most part was more demanding and more advanced than in American elementary schools. Okay. So except for the language problem or challenge, I was pretty much up to speed on everything else, science, math, especially math, you know, because international language and whatnot. Yeah. And so I went from fifth to seventh, and then from then on, you know. All you needed was to understand to speak English. English. Yeah. That was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, so. Mrs. Snyder. She was wonderful. She was yeah. truly a good teacher. I remember her. I have her in my mind's eye as clear as I can see you. And thank you, Ms. Kruger. Ms. Kruger was the one who coordinated. She was the fifth grade teacher. She was the one who coordinated everything, mm-hmm. orchestrated everything, and, you know, plucked Mrs. Snyder out of the PTA. And apparently she made an announcement, you know, I've got this one student who doesn't speak English or not very well, and I need somebody to tutor him. And, you know, Mrs. Snyder raised her hand. And wow. Her Spanish was beautiful. Yeah. She spoke beautiful Spanish. And teachers have a major impact on students. Absolutely. And sometimes it's good mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not. Yep. Um, but it, and yeah. I think that a lot of times the good ones get over overlooked and underappreciated because she mm-hmm. probably, I mean, just what... She, she, yeah. was, she was everything that a, an excellent teacher should be. Mm-hmm. 
she was smart, she was charming, she was engaging, and she was very clever about solving problems. And she cared about her students, obviously. She cared about me. Yeah. Yeah, she cared about me. Did, once you started learning English, did that change your experience of the Mass? Yes, yes, because then I was able to, to attend and, and understand, you know, basically what was going on mm-hmm. and so on. And so um, I remember um, once I got my, eventually a few years later, I got my driver's license, and there was this one church in downtown LA that I really liked mm. and I loved the architecture and stuff and I used to drive out there all the way every Sunday to go hear mass do you remember I, the name of the parish I want to say St. Vincent de Paul or St. Vincent Ferrer okay St. Vincent something something but uh, it was a beautiful beautiful church and everything was very inspiring and I and I remember driving out there by myself on Sundays, and and uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. So after after high school, did you have plans to go on to further education, or what was your? I did. What was your dream? My my dream was because I was so fascinated by languages. Once I learned English, I wanted to study languages. Mm. I wanted to study languages and literature. And so I looked around to see which university might best fit my needs for college. And I decided on Loyola Marymount in LA and I applied at Loyola. And uh, I knew the Jesuits had an excellent educational uh, reputation. Right. And it was a very high ranking university in Southern California. Um, I was delighted when they accepted me with honors and and a four-year scholarship. Nice. My parents could not have afforded that university. It's it's a private university, very expensive. And Loyola was was the best experience that I've had academically anywhere, including grad school. I mean, Mm. Loyola was really an outstanding institution that just, um, I, I, th- I think the world of it. So one of the things that I, I'm kind of amazed in a way, cause I think, cause I wonder about myself. If I had, had I gone through what you went through, would I have been able to maintain my faith? Would I have, would I have come to a point where, God, why have you allowed this to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to fit in, and so I'm going to not renounce it, but underplay my faith. Mm-mm. But that never happened for you. No, because, I'll tell you why it didn't happen for me, because as I look back, not only at my life, but at my whole family and their lives, it should be a prayer of Thanksgiving, what we had left, what we had escaped, what what had happened to us coming to a new country where we knew hardly, except my uncle, we didn't know anybody, didn't speak the language, didn't have a penny to our name, only had, you know, two changes of clothes in a, in a little bag, which is all they allowed us to, to take out of Cuba. You come and you are at a at a blank slate, your mm-hmm. life is at a at zero, at zero. And when you look back 
and you see all the graces and you see practically all the little miracles mm -hmm. that happen to my parents, to me, to our extended family and so on, how can you how can you attribute that only to your own efforts? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How can you not attribute that to a higher power that has sustained you throughout all those dark years before mm -hmm. leaving Cuba and, and during those hard times after we arrived, first arrived in the U.S., mm -hmm. Trinata, they were not a day at the beach, you know, they were not a, a cakewalk. Right. They were very hard years getting adjusted to a new culture, a new language, a new way of doing things. I mean, this is the, the late 60s in the U.S., so we came Good into times. a cultural blender. Oh my gosh, this is a <laughs> that, our country was mixed up at that point. That even for Americans, it yeah. was a challenging time. Yeah. Imagine yeah. you're this know nothing family from Cuba, and you you land in the U.S. in 1966, and 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 yet, my parents were never unemployed. There was always food on the table. We always had a roof over our heads. We were able to get our family out of Cuba. I was able to study become a professional, um, make my parents proud. How can I, how can I keep from singing? Amen. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, did you find that after having lived under oppression for so many years that it took some time to adjust to living in a more free society. I think a lot of people who come from, even like, say you're a prisoner of war, they come back, they still have these, it's almost PTSD. I mean, it's it is it PTSD. Is. You know, you, you, a noise will startle you or mm -hmm. you'll see somebody and mm -hmm. you'll question, hey, are they going to turn me in? Mm -hmm. Even though you're, it's, it's not going to happen, mm -hmm. but in your mind, you Absolutely. still have to deal with the repercussions of that oppression. Did Absolutely. it take some time to adjust? It, it took, I would say, a good two years. Not to speak in hushed tones, mm -hmm. you know, not to look out the window to see if anybody, never to criticize the, the government, and being astounded how on TV, on the, the evening news, a journalist would criticize Washington and the president and so on, and we were just... We were amazed. This was unheard of. <laughs> this was the most, the, this whole freedom of speech thing uh, threw us for a, for a loop for a long time mm -hmm. because we kept looking over our shoulders, metaphorically, sometimes literally, because you had just come from uh, a culture where the least thing could land you in jail, right. like I told you about my mom. So yeah. it was... Um, the amount of freedom, the amount of choice, the amount of um, of everything was initially overwhelming. Oh, and man. and freedom of speech and freedom of, of religion and so on, um, it took some getting used to. Oh, it man. was it was not something that, you know, especially well, I think for me, because I, I was a little kid when things changed in Cuba, so I don't remember that much about, you know, the old uh, system. Mm -hmm. But for my parents, especially, because they had lived through all that. Sure. And then they lived through this, and now they were living through Act 3. And so this was, for them, quite, at times, I'm sure, very disorienting. I'm sure. 
but welcome at the same time. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and I can assure you that we have nothing but gratitude to the U.S. for having brought us out and given us a second chance mm -hmm. to restart our lives. That cannot be denied because that happened. Yeah. And, um, and we will be forever thankful. I think that for so many of us who have grown up in the United States, we take a lot for granted. You do? A lot. You do? You know, and I was just thinking you were talking about freedom of speech, and I think that that's a freedom in our country that we need to protect. And I see it around the world, and I see it sometimes. There's hints of it in our country when freedom of speech is, tries to be throttled back. Um, and I think that for a democracy to f actually function, that is one of the prime freedoms that we need. Um, you know, freedom of speech doesn't mean we all agree. That's the whole point, that we're free to speak our minds. We're free to criticize. Sometimes the criticism is justified. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not, but that's okay. We're free to say it, yeah. you know, and talk about it and talk about it openly and, and, it, and sometimes that will um, f foment discussion and change and um, yep. and, I, and I you know so often we want to say I don't want to hear what you've got to say and so I'm not going to you know I'm going to delete you or block you or, or what mm -hmm. have you and that's you have the right to do that too mm -hmm. but I think that, that it cheapens um, the opportunity to actually change when we stop having dialogue, mm -hmm. even when we disagree, especially, I say, especially when we disagree, right. you know. So yeah. I appreciate you saying that because oftentimes yeah. we don't appreciate the rights that we grew up and just take for granted. Let me, let me take that a little further and let me say that someone like yourself mm -hmm. in many ways has lived an absolute blessed life Mm -hmm. unless you have lived through a dictatorship unless you have lived under a totalitarian government unless you've lived in a society based on distrust and on pettiness unless you've lived in a society where no human rights are respected or even allowed no dissenting voices where, the, where, where your, your, your deepest beliefs, your religious beliefs, your spiritual beliefs are attempted at, you don't know what it's like to live how I lived. Mm -hmm. You don't know how it's like to live like other people, whether totalitarian governments of the right or of the left. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There are dictatorships on both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, Adolf Hitler was no nicer to Catholic priests than Fidel Castro was to our guys and our gals in the 60s. Or Stalin. Or, or Stalin. I mean, but I, I picked one from the left, one from the yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, it's, uh, I, I cannot tell you, you and other Americans like yourself, born and, and raised here, how blessed mm -hmm. you are. Never, never to have experienced what we went through. Because you can only understand it intellectually. That's right. 
no matter how much you may try to sympathize with it and so on, you can't. You, 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 you just, just can't. can't. It's impossible. It's no more than if I told you, that, you know, life is a Martian. You couldn't possibly no. understand it because you've never lived as a Martian. But here's what I can do. I can feel you as you share your story. And I can enter into an imperfect understanding of what you went through by listening mm -hmm. and feeling what you feel. Mm -hmm. and, and I do. I do. I mean, I could ball right now. I mean, I could. <laughs> I, I feel the emotion. I feel, yeah. but I've never walked in your shoes. And I, and I saw so there's a part of your story that I will never be able to fully relate to. Um, and I see that as a blessing for you. And I'm glad oh, for you. It is a blessing. I'm very glad for you that you've never had to experience any of this, that you've never had to see your parents Amen. in the situation Amen. that I saw mine. But here's, what's, here's, here's the difficulty for people on, on my side of the fence. Oftentimes, because we don't have that experience, we don't understand. We don't understand what we have to lose. And we don't understand... You know, I was, I was listening to a... Uh, podcast on immigration and the number of people that are coming here from S South America let's say and we don't understand what they're going through. why why would they leave their homes mm -hmm. their jobs their families their safety to make that journey to the United States because where they're living is so <laughs> horrible Right. So the pro the fix to the problem, the ultimate fix yeah. is working with those countries and getting them to a place where the people want to stay, where they're good countries, where they, you know, they're and we just sometimes we just we, this is how I feel, my opinion, is that we don't have enough empathy for other people and the willingness so I don't understand, but I want to learn. I want mm -hmm. to understand. I want to hear your story. I want to know more than my own experience, you know. And you're perfectly right. Um, in 1959, in Cuba, on, on the wake or on the eve of the revolution, there was no department of emigration in Havana. Hmm. There were so few Cubans who left Cuba to go live anywhere else. They didn't want to. They didn't want to. They had a comfortable life. They liked where they were living and so on. There was all only a department of immigration. Mm -hmm. A lot of Spaniards were moving to Cuba, uh, you know, so a few other Europeans and so on. In, in about six years, in the mid-60s, from 64 to 70, which is when we came during the, what were called the Liberty Flights that were started by the Johnson administration. Over a million and a half Cubans left Cuba. Oh my gosh. And this, this was the upper class and the middle class. These were the professional classes. These were the business owners. These were the educated people. This was the best of the best leaving in droves because, because it was an intolerable situation at every level. A million and a half people don't leave an 11 million person uh, country 
for no good reason. And that's ten percent of the population in six, seven years. Yeah, that's a very short time period. And that was that was an amazing experience. The Cuban uh, the Cuban immigration was unlike other immigrations from other countries. It wasn't the people who couldn't make a go of it in their country that were coming to wanted to come to America. It was the people who had had everything, who were comfortable. They weren't necessarily all rich. Some of them were. But some of them were middle-class people like my family mm -hmm. who never would have thought of leaving Cuba, maybe on vacation. You know, like my aunt. My aunt came to the U.S. in 57 or so. And she traveled from Miami along the East Coast all the way up to New York visiting friends and whatnot and went back home. Mm -hmm. My uncle was an oddball. He, he actually wanted to move out of Cuba to go live in New York. That was very, very odd. I mean, huh. that was exceptionally, I mean, astronomically odd. But so, and then within a matter of six, seven years, you have a million and a half people who can't wait to get on the plane to go live in Europe or to go live in the U.S. or to go live anywhere because the Cuban diaspora is global. Yeah. I mean, Cubans, there are Cubans everywhere, everywhere that anybody who... Who would take them? Um, could things have been different? Yeah, I think if, and I and I don't mean to criticize, but if the Kennedy administration had not lost its nerve with Bay of Pigs and hadn't turned it into such a fiasco, then the Johnson administration would not have had to make amends to Cubans in Cuba and set up the Liberty flights because mm -hmm. the two things are cause and effect. Their cause and effect. Maybe regime change was what was needed in 1962. But then you have the Soviet Union. Then you have the Cold War. Then you have Cuba being, you know, the puck right. in this ice hockey game going on between the U.S. and, and the Soviet and Union. Soviet. So things things are very complicated. That's yeah. why I don't want to blame. You know. it's, 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 and that's exactly the word. It, it was complicated. It was very complicated. And then we're not even talking about, I mean, these are flights, but, we're, but then there was a whole other group of people that would take, get on rafts and try to make it from Cuba to Florida. Not at that time yet. Oh, that, really? that, that came up that, later. That, that came up after the flights ended oh. and there was no other way out in 1970. Oh. And then it, be, it reached a, a crescendo in 1980 with Ma Marielle mm -hmm. and the Marielle boat lift. But that, that would come later. That comes later. But in the 60s, the experience was, you know, this upper class and this middle class getting on flights and, you know, flying Coming to the over. U.S. and so on after waiting for four years, you right. know, living right. miserably. Yeah. So here you are, you know, you, where did you go to grad school? Grad school was UCLA. UCLA. So you're, you're, you're living down in Southern California, right? Um, and right now you're living in Elk Grove. Right. Um, but you come to the Cathedral of Blessed Sacrament. Oh, so and I love it. You're very much part of the family here. But what, what brings you to Northern California? Northern California, I moved to Northern California in 1991. I got a job at St. Mary's College in Moraga. Mm. And my in, in, in my first life, my first work life, mm -hmm. I taught college for several years okay and the job that brought me was as a professor of languages and literature at St. Mary's in Moraga and um, 
and it was interesting um, for a long time you know I, I, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the sower hmm. throwing the seed here hmm. and if it lands there you know it grows and if it lands over there it grows a little bit and then it, it, it withers and, and if it lands over there what well, doesn't grow at all and so on right um I think what happened, and, 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 and then the, the relevant one would be the one that is, is uh, the growth is choked by all the preoccupations mm. of daily life and mm-hmm. so on. I think what happened to me was after being very faithful and very fervent in my belief, once I got into developing my career, once I got into grad school, once I got busy with okay, this is what I'm going to do for a living. And, uh, and then uh, trying to get that first career off the ground and so on and so forth. My faith began to, and the practice of my faith, not my faith, but the practice of my faith began to fade, you know, mm-hmm. more and more into the background. So that for several years, there wasn't much that I could say that I did as a practicing Catholic and then it was back in the, I would say, the early 90s that I began to take stock of my life. I was already in my 30s. I was in my mid-30s. And, you know, like, like Dante says at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, in the, in the middle of life's road, you know, I found myself in a dark forest. And, um, and I began to, to reassess the value of returning to a spiritual, a life of, you know, spirituality, a mm-hmm. life of faith, and so on. And, um, and, and, and I initially I thought, okay, maybe, you know, there's several possibilities. I, I could try to go back to Catholicism, or I could explore another faith, you know, maybe Buddhism, maybe, you know, maybe I'd make a good Methodist. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, or Baptist in this case, I think it goes better with our conversation today. Um, but there was a Catholic church uh, near where I was living at the time, and I began to uh, to frequent that church and the mass and so on. And I remember at the very beginning, I would sit in the very back pew, very last pew, and I and I. Because I started telling myself, well, if I get bored, I'm just going to leave. Or if I, if I get uncomfortable, I'm just going to leave. Or if they say something I don't like, I'm just going to leave. As it turned out, I never left. <laughs> I never left. And, and at the beginning, I thought, okay, I, can, I, I don't know how much of this I can accept as a theology again. But at least I can accept it as a philosophy. Hmm. As a, as a way of uh, leading my life, as a way of conducting my life, and so on. So I began looking at Catholicism for a second time, initially from a philosophical standpoint, until eventually it began to grow on me as a theology again, as a spirituality again. And then I was very fortunate, or perhaps divine providence took me to the, to the one parish I needed at that time in my life, and it was a wonderful parish with a wonderful uh, priest and tremendous support for someone like myself. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and there was no turning back. That's and great. Since then, since then, my faith has been nothing but stronger and and more in depth and more mature. And uh, it's not the faith I had when I was sixteen. I mean, I've Nor grown. Should it be. As I've grown as a person. Now. Absolutely right. So it's more nuanced and and whatnot. So well, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who works. You know who draws straight lines with, or who draws straight with crooked lines. You know, Which and, I've heard that phrase more than once. You know, Bishop Wigan used that phrase with me when we were and talking, it's, and it's very true. I mean, you know, and and you think of some things as being coincidental, and then later you look back and you say, maybe it was providential. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't coincidental. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what I needed at that time in my life. Right. Maybe I was at the right place at the right time with the right people. And I didn't even know it. Didn't know it. No. So it, that's basically, you know, the return that uh, that you know that that came back to uh, what brought me back to to Catholicism. So what, let's yeah. talk about your migration to the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament. Oh, I love the ritual. So, no, I mean, what brought you? So here you're I, in you're in you're in like uh, East Bay, mm-hmm. right? Right. And. What transis- transition transitioned uh, you right um, to the Sacramento area? I began to making to make friends in in the Sacramento area. I met my friend Tom. I met his family. Um, they introduced me to other people. I began to consider moving out of the Bay Area, which I had been considering for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, and at the time, uh, for example, Tom was not. A practicing Catholic or anything. or anything, yeah. Um, but I on the days on the, on the weekends that I would come to see them, uh, I would either hear Mass at St. Stephen's, okay, because I'm still very much attached to, to the, the to the mass. old Mass, very mm-hmm. much. The old Mass. It's it's nothing more beautiful. Or uh, I would come, I, one day I came by to check out the the cathedral, and I had never seen the building, and I had never seen the service, and so on, and I was just captured hmm. i was captured it was beautiful and the, the the choir and so on so the aesthetics of it is really what initially attracted me was that before or after the remodel that was right after the remodel right after the remodel yeah okay. that, this was after the remodel and so um so whenever i'd be up in the sacramento area this is where i would come or i'd go to st stephen's, st. stephen's. and uh, and hear mass over there high mass mm-hmm. yeah i never go to low mass it's a uh, High mass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? I there's such a minority of Catholics now that celebrate the older traditional mass. Traditional mass. You might not know the difference between a high and a low mass. A high mass is uh, bells and whistles. Everything. It's uh, Latin and lace. It's um, you know everything. Low mass is a much much simpler mass mm-hmm. than even the, the the modern mass than even the current mass and very short it's maybe 20 minutes you're mostly on your knees it's extremely quiet and so on so i guess for some purposes it would be you know the right fit mm-hmm. but the high mass um, st stephen's also has a wonderful choir an exceptionally wonderful choir and uh and the, they they perform the 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 mass in in a absolutely perfect letter perfect way, and I just love the sound as a language buff. 
I love the sound of Latin. So mm-hmm. I, it's there's nothing more sonorous than than hearing the the you know the the ritual in Latin. Latin has a sound that is un- very unique. Very unique. Well, and you would know from from singing. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's you know it's got the quality just just like Sanskrit. It's a, it's called a dead language. Mm-hmm. So it's set. It's not mm-hmm. going to change. And, That's right. You know, in English we add words and we change words. And, we, and the meaning of words change it. And change. the meaning of but a language like Latin or or, or Sanskrit, it is what it is. Yeah. Hebrew. Ancient the Greek. same way. Ancient Greek. Hebrew. Yeah. Same Hebrew. way. Yeah. So I mean, it's not the only language related to a religion or a denomination that is in that in that category. Mm-hmm. And and you ha- people have to remember that if you attend the Latin Mass and you bring your missile, your missile is bilingual. Sure. One column is in Latin, one sure. column is in English. So as far as substance, you're never going to really, if you pay attention, mm-hmm. you're never going to miss out on what is being said. And, and here's one of the ironies, I think, too, because oftentimes when we say the Latin Mass, we often are speaking of... The traditional the Mass. Tridentine, right. Yeah. But the... Novus Ordo, the new mass, can be said completely Absolutely. in Latin. Absolutely. But we just don't do it. Absolutely. But it could be done. And, and to go back to the original conversation on Cuba, when we left in 66, it was the Novus Ordo greatly in Latin that was still being said. It was only later, after we had left Cuba by 1970, hmm. that the Novus Ordo was then practically all in the vernacular. In the vernacular. But in, in the in-between years, between 62 and 70, yeah, and yeah. There, there was that uh, spectrum of more Latin, less Latin, more vernacular, less vernacular. Has it, cha- it changed? Yeah. So I have a couple questions for you. The first mm-hmm. one is, how many languages do you speak? Fluently, I speak four. Four. And I also have knowledge of some German, and uh, I can read Portuguese pretty fluently. Uh, I've taken Latin. I've taken modern Greek. Um, so I just love languages. Of, of the languages that you know, and we're going to discount Latin, Right. what's your favorite? Italian. Italian. No question about it. Really? How no come? question about it. How come? It's the most beautiful. Uh, it's the most be- I have to. I have to say it's more beautiful than my native Spanish, and... It's certainly more musical than English. It's less fussy than French. And uh, it's just a wonderfully beautiful, fun, robust language. So when you hear the Pope Mm -hmm. speaking in Italian, Mm -hmm. you understand him. I understand him, and I can can tell you right here and now that he has a very strong Spanish accent in Italian. Does he? He does. Does he? You can can tell he's not a native speaker. (laughs) And as a um, literature... Uh, professor, mm-hmm. do you have a favorite book? Do I have a favorite book? Got you on that one, huh? You, you, yeah. I have a lot of favorite books because, as being in literature, you know, yeah. And there's so many different but, genres, and, and so, yeah. You might, you I, I'll tell you, I, I like, and and this comes from Russian literature, okay. which is not a language that I speak. Mm-hmm. But Tolstoy's mm. Anna Karenina is a wonderful, wonderful study of someone whose life is self-destroyed by a lack of 
perspective and spirituality hmm. in her life. And Tolstoy was a very spiritual man. Yes, he was. So she is definitely an anti-heroine that he treats with great compassion. Hmm. And that's what makes it a fascinating novel. It's hmm. a long novel, but it is a compelling, engaging work that I think can be read today the way it was 150 years ago. 150 years ago. And nothing, nothing really is lost. It's, people it's a, are people, right? People are people, and... and and the way Tolstoy um, depicts her decline and fall with everything else that is being left behind in her life, including her spirituality uh, and her obsessions, uh, it's, it's a fascinating work. It's hmm. a fascinating work. Hmm. It's, it's a novel that is, in my view, the... Um, the example of what a true novel should be. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for that. I yeah. appreciate and that. And if, if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend that you take a look at it. You know, I think you may be one of the few people that can pronounce her name correctly. Anna Karenina? Yeah, yeah. I see it. I, can, I always botch it. I always just, I can't, just doesn't, my it's, brain doesn't compute that last name. And that's her husband's last name, and it's a story about adultery. Now, oh, there is wow. irony from the very title. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. Tolstoy. Tolstoy. I yeah. would say, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and Dostoevsky also not, not bad stuff to read. Not at all. And, and to challenge one in um, if feeling too complacent in your Christianity. Mm. It's a way to kind of... Mm-hmm prick you, poke you, and uh, and make you think. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's so important. I know that growing up in, if you're growing, if you grow up in the church, there's a, a tendency to think that this is the way it is, mm-hmm. and this is how it should be done, and this is how everybody does it, mm-hmm. and it isn't, right? It mm-hmm. isn't. It just mm-hmm. isn't. Um, and so that, that exposure, you know, the brothers Karamazov and, um, uh, just a different way of approaching the life of Christ and being mm-hmm. a Christian. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. important. Yeah. So, um, what a great story. <laughs> You're enjoying your retirement. I am. I, I've just started, but uh, and there have been a few, a few little setbacks with my mother's health, as mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I'm I'm enjoying it and trying to see what I'm going to do in Act 3. Yeah. So this is my new act. Got a and, new act. Uh, yeah, I got a new act, and I have to figure out what I'm going to do with it. Act 3. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this story and, and um, some emotionally difficult things. Absolutely. You know? So thank you for that. Um, so what do you say? We uh, we bring our conversation to a, to a close, and we say the Our Father together. Sounds enjoy wonderful. the rest of our afternoon on this lovely Friday. Sounds May. wonderful. Okay, so. All right. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver, deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and we pray Amen. for the church in Cuba. We do. Yeah. We do. Things yeah. are, are still not uh, where they should be. There has been some um, relaxation, but uh, there's still it's still a church that is under the thumb of yeah. a totalitarian government. Yeah. So I've got a book. It's a short book on some of Tolstoy's writings from his spiritual stuff. I don't know. You've probably never read some of it. Um, are you going to be around on Sunday? I will be. Okay. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. I will bring it and I will let you have it. And I brought you something. Get out of here. I did. I did. I brought you something. I brought you my second book. I wrote three written oh, that's so right. far you wrote three, three books. books. Yeah. Yeah. But this is number two. And I think it has to do, the one that has to do the most with. Catholic themes, spiritual mm, themes, okay. and so on. It's called Cuba Between History and Legend. And it's a series of short stories inspired by real events in Cuban history. Oh, wow. That appear to be so outrageously un- incredible that you think, no, but yeah. It's not possible, right? It's not possible, but well, it is. Thank you for that. So you're very welcome. And I also, thank, I also thank you for um, the Cuban restaurant. Oh. I remember because Tom took me to get my COVID vaccine. That's right. And then afterwards, you had demanded that he bring home this Cuban food because there's a, a little Cuban, the only Cuban restaurant the only Cuban in restaurant. Sacramento. That's right. And um, mm-hmm. and so I got to per, you know partake of Cuban cuisine. Mm-hmm. So that's because of you. And you haven't and you haven't had my Cuban garbanzo soup. I have not, but that I, you something have to, that I'm going to have to look forward to. I, I have to make that for you sometime. There you go. Yeah. I look forward to it. All right. All right, Oscar, you have a wonderful, blessed day. And Thank I'll, you. I'll see you soon. All right. Thank okay. you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Let's Talk Parish is co-produced by Rex Rolanka, Titi Kila, and Chris Jensen. Our theme music is Live and Be Happy by Valentina Ribanova. You can listen to Let's Talk Parish by going to the Cathedral website at cathedralsacramento.org or by searching on your favorite podcast app. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. A special thanks goes to the Rector of the Cathedral of the Blessed Sacrament, Father Michael O'Reilly. If you wish to donate to the Cathedral, please visit our website at cathedralsacramento.org. There you will find a button labeled Donate. I'm Chris Jensen and I have had the pleasure of being your host for this episode. Thank you for listening and until we meet again, may God be with us all.